Howdy, folks. Porter Larson here. You may recognize my voice from the airwaves of ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City. I'm the host of Utes Game Day, pre-half and post-game shows for Utah football and basketball. I produce and contribute to The Drive daily from 2 to 6. And additionally, I cover the Utah Jazz, some Real Salt Lake, and so much more. If you don't recognize my voice, well, hi, hello there, and thanks for joining me here on After the Whistle. This is my podcast, and it's one that's aptly named After the Whistle because we will talk about sports, but we'll also cover a whole bunch of stuff that comes after the whistle. The humans behind the face mask, mental health and sports, athletes behind social causes, training and nutrition, and really just deep conversation with interesting people. People who oftentimes are only seen as entertainers or news sources. The reality of it is, most of these folks have so much more to offer than just carrying a football, dunking, or reporting on your favorite sports team. So in this space, I aim to bring on guests that you're familiar with in the professional and college sports world, as well as folks behind the scenes that might not usually get all that much credit or airtime. On this installment of After the Whistle, I'm going to do my best to help tell you a story with a little help from the man himself. A man larger than life. And when I say that, I mean it quite literally. He'll go up top to Charles Oakley, drive by Malone. Eaton is there to block it. Best he's ever played in his life in a period of less than eight minutes. And he wasn't even supposed to pluck. Looks back door. Now finds it over to Steve Colton. Coulter, free throw line to Mike Brown, jumper blocked by Eaton, grab by Bailey. No, Jordan, he does. Jordan guarded by Griffith, they isolate him. Jordan drives, Eaton is there, he forces it up, air ball. Corsi's got a double pump, blocked by Eaton. What a play by Big Mark, and it goes out of bounds, Jazz basketball. Boy, Mark Eaton did not give up any ground at all, his fourth block on the night. Unbelievable by Eaton, he intimidates Jordan to force up an air ball. Mark Eaton was seven and a half feet tall and a lean 300 plus pounds. A former NBA All-Star, two-time Defensive Player of the Year, to this day holds the league record for blocks in a single season. His number 53 jersey hangs in the rafters at Vivint Arena, and he's been nominated for the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. After hoops, Mark stuck around in Utah and became a restaurateur, an author, and a motivational speaker. He did all of those things at an elite level, and he did so all the way up until he passed away at 64 in May of this year near his home in Park City. I grew up in the Park City area, and I was lucky enough to get to know Mark long before I was ever in the sports business. And here's the thing. He was only really larger than life until you got to know him. To me, his stature never really became normal. Every time I saw Mark, whether we were meeting at his ranch or running into each other at a game... I was always a little awestruck. But Mark, more than anything, just wanted to fit in. And although he was really just like the rest of us, it was sometimes pretty damn funny watching him try to fit in. On the ski hill, on his mountain bike, at the farmer's market, or on the back of his beloved horse, Big Tim. He couldn't help but stand out, no matter how much he wanted the exact opposite. It was impossible not to look up to Big Mark, But the cool part is, he never once looked down on you. A staple in the Park City community and beyond, 
And not because he was a famous basketball player, but because he was actually involved and invested. He helped me on the Summit County Trails Commission, and he was an integral part of the restaurant community as well as youth outreach programs. He did a lot of that behind the scenes, not expecting attention or credit. The man that Mark Eaton became was one that I think he was always kind of destined for. But that doesn't mean the journey wasn't unlikely. A journey that uniquely differed from just about every other professional basketball player. Mark didn't always play hoops. His early days in Inglewood, California saw him playing mostly water polo. And when he did play basketball, he found himself sitting on the end of the bench at Westminster High. Because of that, Mark didn't have many options after high school. So he decided to follow in the footsteps of his father, Bud, a diesel and boat mechanic. (laughs) Picture that, pulling into an auto shop, needing a repair, and being greeted by someone twice your size. Well, that's exactly what happened to Tom Lubin, an assistant basketball coach at nearby Cypress College. Lubin knew he had to get the slender 21-year-old Eaton out of the garage at Bloom Automotive and onto the court with head coach Don Johnson. Mark finally had the support and instruction he needed to make improvements on his game. It was slow progress, but progress nonetheless. He averaged 14 points a game for Cypress before transferring to UCLA, a school steeped in the history of remarkable centers. He didn't play much at all at UCLA and often second-guessed leaving his mechanic job. That was until he got a hold of former jazz coach Frank Layden, Layden and the Jazz had faith that they could coach him up the right way and utilize his unique stature. As Layden told me, you simply can't coach tall. So, Mark had his size 16 converse in the door with a pro basketball team. And the rest is history. A unique path to the NBA, no doubt, and a story that deserves to be told. That being said, no one better to tell it than Mark himself. In what I believe to be his final public interview, Mark joined me to do just that. Mark, am I correct? Were you were you on the ski hill? Is that why we couldn't get you the first time? (laughs) No, I was in a conference room. I uh, and I couldn't hear the phone. Um, I'd like to be on the ski hill though. Maybe tomorrow. (laughs) I I know it. I I I always tell people this. I, I saw you and I ran into you up at Deer Valley one year, and I I just. I know it's it's an everyday thing for you. I know you're a normal and avid skier, but for me, watching someone who's seven and a half feet tall fly down a, a, a snow hill on skis <laughs> was just something that I can't really wrap my mind around, and it's it's a memory that I'll never I'll never forget. So, how, how did that come about? Um, and, and obviously, it, being in Utah helps. But what got you into skiing? Well, a couple of years after I retired in the, the mid '90s, um, you know, was, I was kind of struggling. With- being you know beat up and uh, injured from being in the NBA for so long, and really needed to find something to do physically. And I met a friend of mine in in Park City named John Brable, who was a ski instructor and also a ski suit designer. He's about six five, and, and he said, "Hey, I could help you learn how to ski." And I'm like, "Really, me ski? Are you kidding me?" <laughs> um, but I decided to give it a whirl. He helped me find some skis and clothes, and um, and I decided I'm going to try this six or seven times before I decide if I like it or not. And the first two or three times, I was like, man, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm falling down all over the place, and here comes this little 70-year-old woman by me, like, shoosh, shoosh, shoosh. <laughs> and I started thinking, all right, I'm missing something here. By lesson five or six, I finally started to get a feel for it. 
and uh, I was hooked. And by then, the athlete brain took over and like, okay, I got to figure this out. And I've been skiing probably 40 days a year um, ever since then. I think it was really 22nd year doing that, but it's been great because it helps helps my legs, keeps me strong, gets me outside. And I don't ski all day, just ski for a couple hours in the morning, but um, it's really uh, helps my mental and physical well-being during the winter months. Do you, I'm assuming all your stuff is custom. How long are your skis? Um, I ski on like 185s. Um, right now I'm on some, um, let's see, I've got some Kessley 185s right now or 88s. And um, then I've got some uh, some uh, Nordica Enforcers for the powder days. And, you know, I, I love it. And Deer Valley is the greatest place ever. They just do such a great job up there. And so um, uh, I've had a great time up there. And then, you know, we ski for about an hour and a half with my friends and I, and then we get together, we have coffee, we talk about our skiing, and we go home. <laughs> That's so awesome. Great. That's awesome. So, Mark, uh, you have an interesting story. Not only the fact that you're you're seven foot four. I know that's a big talking point as far as, as growing up being uh, a little bit different, right? And and and, and standing out a little bit. Uh, but your story is one that really intrigues me. You grew up in Southern California, and despite being seven feet plus. You were never really into basketball until really later on in your life. Uh, you were a mechanic for a long time. Tell me and, and give the listeners who aren't familiar, give them a little idea of what your early life was like and, and how you ended up not being in basketball for the for the first 20, sure. 25 years of your life. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Southern California. My father was a marine diesel mechanic, and I grew up on boats and working around boats and um, played some sports in high school wasn't really good at any of them, was on the basketball team because I was really tall, and uh, but never played, sat at the end of the bench. And after high school, I decided, well, sports really aren't a big thing for me, and I'm going to go do something else. And so I actually went to trade school in Arizona to learn to be an auto mechanic. And I was working at a tire store in Southern California, and a junior college coach happened around the corner one day and saw me out there selling a brake job to some short little lady and, and said, you know, who's this big tall guy hanging out here in this tire store? And happened to be about a mile down the road from Cypress Junior College. And um, he started talking to me about playing basketball. And, of course, everybody asked me that when they came in the shop. It used to really tick me off. And uh, But he, he shared some things with me about being a big guy that he knew that most coaches don't um, and convinced me to just go out with him one afternoon after work and showed me some things that I could do at the basketball that I'd never seen before, never considered intrigued me enough to say, all right, I'll, I'll start meeting with you after work and we'll see how this goes for a little while and spent about four months doing that. And I decided to uh, enroll in junior college and give it a try, even though I really hadn't done anything athletic for over three years. Uh, but um, that's how it started and uh, spent two years at junior college and sold cars and worked as a bouncer to pay the rent and, and then um, ended up going to UCLA, sitting on the bench there. Uh, that didn't go quite so well, um, but my junior college coach and I uh, started calling NBA teams on the telephone and cold called the, the Jazz, who were a bad team in a bad market at that point in time, and Frank Layden decided to give me a chance and came down and watched me play in a summer league in Southern California and, and said, hey, we want you to come to the Jazz for a year and we'll see how it goes and go from there, and that's how I got to Salt Lake. The only thing I really did in high school was I played water polo. I mean, I grew up at the beach, and so we were always riding our bikes to the beach and swimming lots. I'd done a lot of swimming growing up, and uh, so that probably helped me a little bit. And I was a goalie on the water polo team, and so that probably helped me with blocking shots a little bit. But uh, mm. what really shifted for me was this coach's commitment to me at my junior college. It said, look, if you want to try this, 
uh, and that I'll be here for you every night. I'll pick you up. I'll drop you off. And I'd never really had a coach make that kind of commitment to me or anybody really say, like, you want to do this, I'll help you. And, and this coach had worked with some other big guys. His uncle had taught him some things about some low post moves and how to play, but playing basketball as a five man that, that most people don't know and isn't really even taught today. Uh, and so I think that was the psychology for me was like, all right, as long as this guy believes in me, I'm willing to give this a try and see where it goes. And I figured I'd keep doing it until all the doors were shut. And even there were some big obstacles and not playing at UCLA and stuff like that, there was still always hope out there that maybe I could do something, make a play in Europe or, you know, South America or somewhere. And, and this coach just kept believing in me. And because he believed in me, that kept, kept me the motivation to kind of keep giving it a try and, and see what would, you know, the next step might be. You mentioned you sat on the end of the bench in high school. You sat on the end of the bench in UCLA. Usually that doesn't translate into an NBA career. Was there something that clicked psychologically for you? Or was there something that on the Jazz development staff that they worked with you really well to get things uh, to where you were contributing? Because you went from the end of the UCLA bench to leading the NBA in in blocks in, in just a couple of years. Well, my junior college coach would tell me, say, look, if you're not going to play in the games at UCLA, you're going to have to make the practices your games. You're going to be the first guy to practice and last one to leave because it's not about this year. He's like, you know, this is a temporary stop. Like you're here for two years. Cause I thought about, honestly, thought about quitting at UCLA a few times because I just wasn't playing. It wasn't fun. Um, and my junior college coach said, no, 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 no. You know, and, and a great example is like, I got left home uh, the last road trip, my senior year at UCLA and I was so bummed and called my junior college coach and looking for some sympathy. He's like, oh, they left you home? Oh, that's too bad. Hey, grab your shoes, grab a ball, jump down here, you know, come back to Orange County and let's work out this weekend while they're going. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Um, and uh, so it was that kind of mindset that uh, got me through that uh, because he said, you will have an opportunity to try out for an NBA team. You'll have an opportunity to try out for a team in Europe. So you have to keep working. And that's what kept me going. And then when the Jazz got a hold of me and Frank clearly saw I still needed a lot more work. But he said, if you're willing to come to our training camp a month early and work with our coaches, um, you know, maybe we can get you in good enough shape where you can, um, you know, you can make a contribution. We'll just see how it goes. I mean, he was just willing to take a chance on me without really knowing what the payoff might be. And, and I still remember the turning point was about um, a month into the season, we we're playing down in Dallas, who was an expansion team at that time. And Frank put me in the game like at the beginning of the second quarter, and I blocked like six shots in five minutes. And I can remember turning and running up the court and glancing over at the bench, and the coaches, Bill Johnson and Scott Layden and Frank, were all looking at each other and nodding at each other like, hey, this is pretty good. And it was at that moment that I knew, like, okay, maybe I can do this job. Mark, you really broke out in, in about 1984. You averaged 10 points a game, 5.6 blocks a game, which is an NBA record still to this day. Going back to that, how did it feel to finally get over that hump? Was it like reaffirming for you in kind of a, a moment where you're like, okay, now this, this is something where I can, I can make a name for myself and, and be special? Or was that just something you expected? I know it, was a, it wasn't the, the normal path to that point for you, but uh, what was it like kind of being, I guess, on top of the world at that point? Well, it wasn't an affirmation for me that, hey, I can do this job because it was difficult. I mean, when you're the biggest guy in the court, they right. always have the highest expectations of the guy who's the most visible, right? And uh, everybody should say, I, you know, I should be more coordinated, I should score more, I should do this more, I should do that more. And uh, so to actually become a part of a winning team and 
and uh, and to get the playing time and break the record, things like that. It was a kind of a stamp of approval or a stamp of respectability that, uh, hey, not only did I make the NBA, but now I'm contributing to the NBA and making a difference in the NBA and becoming one of the better players in the NBA. So that was a big year, having that breakout year and being defensive player of the year and breaking the record and all that stuff. Um, and as well, it was uh, from a team standpoint, we as a team started to gain a lot of respectability in the league. And, and that was a uh, that was a lot of fun, too, because we were honestly the doormat of the NBA my first uh, my first year. You mentioned being the doormat of the league a little bit. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the competition. You played in an era with a lot of really, really good big men. What are some opponents that stood out to you, maybe individually or other teams as well? Well, I, I think that um, early in my career, I got the chance to play against some great centers like Kareem and Bob Lanier and Artis Gilmore and some of these guys. And when Akeem Olajuwon came into the mix, coming from a soccer background uh, in a seven-foot body, that became a real challenge for me personally because he was so quick. I think one year he led the NBA in steals and blocks as a five-man. And, uh, and then the Rockets became a nemesis of ours as well. Uh, and we played them all the time because they're in our division. And so that's, that's probably the toughest guy I had to play against day in and day out. I mean, there was, I played in the era of great centers. You, know, you talk about Patrick or, you know, Robert Parrish or Jack Sigma or um, David Robinson, who were on all the way through the shack. Uh, it was a great era of great centers. Um, but Akeem gave us more trouble than anybody else. Mark, now that you're retired, we know we talk about skiing. Um, I know you do motivational speaking. You're an author. But just give the listeners a, a little bit of insight into what life is like for Mark Eaton after basketball. Um, well, I've done a wide variety of things. The, the crazy part when you retire is like, um, you know, you were focused on one thing for so long, and now you've got a, a big menu and you can do all kinds of things, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, but um, for me, you know, the, the restaurants were the, uh, a, a good deal for me because it gave me something to focus on. And I had a partner who was very experienced in running them from San Francisco. And we're still in business 23 years later uh, with Tuscany. And then, um, and then about 10 years ago, people had always asked me to come and tell this story that we just, you know, referred to about how I became a player. And I came up with the idea one day of like, what if I turn this into a motivational speech that would be good for business. And of course, it only took me about four years to figure out how to do that. Um, but um, that's what I spend most of my time doing now. I speak about 50 times a year around the country and do this program called the four commitments of a winning team. And I tell my story and I help businesses relate better to one another and help employees understand that they are a part of a team and, and what the responsibility is as being a team member. And if the team wins, they win. Uh, and, uh, so, um, so I do that. I do some business coaching and, and that's kind of what keeps me busy. Ski a little bit, ride my bike in the summer and, and, um, try to keep all the pieces moving. That is Mark Eaton, two-time NBA defensive player of the year, four-time blocks leader, number 53, retired by the Utah Jazz, and now a Hall of Fame nominee. Before we get you out of here, get your reaction to being nominated to the Naismith Hall of Fame and, and what that means to you. Uh, it's humbling. It's honoring, and I'm um, not sure what to, to think about it. It's um, it's pretty cool. And then I look at all the other people that are nominated, and I'm like, man, I'm like an asterisk compared to some of these guys that are up there for the hall. But just to be nominated, I think, is a pretty darn cool thing. And um, and uh, so I'm I'm uh, excited that they you know that somebody nominated me. I don't even know who it was. And 
uh, see how the process goes forward. But uh, just being mentioned with all the other great players and coaches and everybody else that, that are being considered for uh, this year's class is, uh, is pretty exciting. Thanks a lot, Mark, and I uh, look forward to next time I see you on the slopes. All right. Sounds good. As the great Frank Layden said, you can't coach tall. Mark was obviously that, but he was also a genuine, kind, humble, and gracious person. Frankly, I don't think you can really coach that either. I recorded that interview not long before Mark passed away. Clearly, wasn't the time to release it. So after speaking with those close to him, I decided now would be a good time to tell his story and give some insight into Mark's life off the floor. I hope we did that well. Instead of sponsoring or monetizing this episode, I ask you to consider contributing to the Eden Legacy. If you're a local, stop by Tuscany or Franks for a bite to eat. And if not, maybe purchase the four commitments of a winning team. It's a great read for those hoping to improve on leadership or team building skills. If you're still with me, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the pod. It helps me out, and the feedback is always appreciated. If you're interested in getting involved or sponsoring future episodes, find me on Twitter or hit me up via email at porterlarson1 at gmail.com. Thank you for joining me on After the Whistle. I'm Porter Larson. Until next time.